Man, it's good to worship with you guys this morning, an honor for me to be back here with you. Uh, If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it, open to James chapter 3. That's where we're going to take a look today, James 3. We've been in this series the past uh, couple weeks called James Practical Wisdom for Today, and uh, that really is what the book of James is. It's probably the most practical book in the Bible, uh, that or Proverbs, and uh, it's amazing. And and what it really does is it kind of takes a look at how when the gospel applies to the life of a, of a person, and that person's invaded by the reality of, of the grace of Jesus, uh, here's how then practically things begin to play out in that person's life. And so the book of James then talks about things like, um, here's how a gospel-centered person deals with things like suffering or difficult uh, seasons of their life. Here's how a person that's been saturated by the gospel, you know, deals with um, how they focus their days. Here's how they kind of arrange the, you know, the days and the weeks of, of their lives. Um, and so today, though, what James is going to do is James is going to really zone in on this idea of, of how the gospel affects our speech. What does it look like uh, with our words when the gospel applies to a person's life? Um, this is really important for us to talk about. Here's why. Um, about a fifth of your life is spent talking. That's just the average person. That's like not some of you that, that, you know, talk a lot. That's just the average person spends a fifth of your life talking. If you take out the hours that you sleep, that's actually more than half of your waking hours you spend using your mouth to talk to other people. Now, here's what that looks like practically, okay? Um, If you were to take all of the words that the average person in this room speaks and put it in a, you know, written form, it would equal in one day, one day, a 50-page book. Some of you are like, dang, my wife talks way more than that. It was like 150. No, 50-page book, the average person. The average person, if you do that for one week, would fill up 132 200-page books, right? We use our words a lot. And so it makes sense then that if there's something that we spend that much time in our lives doing, that the Bible would have some things to say about it. And so uh, Proverbs, the other practical, really practical book in the Bible, talks a lot about how we use our words. Jesus talked about how we use our words. But James, it's really interesting. More than any uh, of those others, James actually thought it was so important that in every chapter of the book of James... He addresses how we use our words in some way. But in chapter 3, which is where we're going to look today, James uh, really zones in on it for basically two-thirds of this chapter, the first 12 verses. And so let's read those together, and then we'll unpack it. Here's what I believe James does and what I want to show you. Um, I want to show you three realities about the way we use our words uh, that James shows us in this text. And then I want to show you some bad news and good news. All right, so let's read it, then we'll talk about it. Verse 1. Not many, of you, uh, not, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They also are so large and are driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. 
For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both, uh, of both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, so three things that the Bible says uh, that James has just told us about our words and then bad news and good news. All right, notice out of the gate in verse 1, what James does is, in verse 1, he begins this whole little discourse about how we use our words by talking about teachers. It's interesting because at first glance, you might read this and you go, what does that have to do with anything? Well, actually, it has everything to do with James's real point here. Basically, he's saying to us that teachers must be careful in the way they use their words. And here's why. Because teachers, kind of by nature, James is saying, use more words than other people do. His point is, the more words a person uses, the more powerful or potential for impact that person has on other people's lives, or potential for impact on people's lives that he has. And so therefore, the more powerful that person is by nature, because of the more words he uses, so a teacher must be more diligent in the way he uses his words. James's point really in all of that is, and he's going to continue to show us this in the next several verses, his point is, number one, our words are powerful. Like, we know that that's true, but James begins to kind of show us, gives us like any good preacher would, illustrations for what that looks like. And so what he does in the next few verses, verses 2 through really the first part of verse 5, is he gives us two illustrations to really kind of describe the power of the tongue. Notice back in your Bibles, if you still have it open there, what he said. He said, he said the tongue is kind of like a bit in the mouth of a horse, and it's kind of like the rudder on a ship. So, so basically he says, this, this little small thing in the mouth of a horse, this bit, this little thing that's like the size of, of a magic marker, can control this massive animal, right? It has unbelievably disproportionate power, right? Uh, then he says the rudder on a ship is kind of the same way. It can control this massive ship, make it go wherever the pilot or the captain wants it to go. This small little thing has a disproportionate degree of, powerful, uh, of power. His point is that, uh, that our words are incredibly powerful, that little things like words have, have big power, that things, that our world, that large things are impacted by the power of this small thing, the tongue, or our words. Now, if you're not tracking with me, let me give, me, uh, let me give you an example biblically for the power of our words, all right? Go back with me to Sunday school, boys and girls, all right? Uh, if you go back with me to Sunday school, what we all learned if you were in Sunday school is that God, in Genesis, created nothing, uh, something from nothing. That there was nothingness, right? And then something happened, and then there was somethingness, right? So there was nothing, God did something, then something. What was it, boys and girls, that God did that brought somethingness out of nothingness. He spoke. God's words had power. Specifically, his words had the power to create something out of nothing. 
Now, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, what it tells us is that we, you and I, all of us, were created in the image of God. And just as we were created in the image of God, and just as his words had power to create something out of nothing, so do our words. All right? Let me let you take a breath for a second because I don't want you to label me a heretic, all right? Uh, Before you begin to label me a heretic and think I'm talking about health and wealth, name it and claim it, prosperity gospel, that's not at all what I'm talking about. Here's what I'm talking about. Your words do, in fact, have the power to create. Think about your self-worth, okay? Your self-worth is nothing more than the accumulation of years of what people have said about you. See, your self-worth or your self-esteem was created by other people with words. Your words, just like God's, have the power to create. Uh, The accumulation of what you either, uh, what has been said about you or or what you think has been said about you form your self-esteem, your self-worth. The power of words can create something like self-worth out of nothing. Not only that, but also relationships. Relationships are created by, by nothing more than the power of words. Uh, that's, think about marriage specifically. How did, were marriages created? Marriages are created when you said to your uh, wife-to-be, will you used words, will you marry me, right? Or when you stood at an altar with a pastor or whatever and you said, I do, I do, with this ring, I thee wed. Your relationships, marriages are created with the power of words. But also marriages, in fact, all relationships are destroyed with the power of words. Right? But your words, the point is, and James's point is, your words have the power to create something out of nothing. Uh, think about communities. All of the communities in our world, even this community, is created with the power of words. And the minute that words can no longer be trusted by leaders of that community, that community falls apart. You know that that's true. You've seen that in churches where that's happened. You see that in nations across our world. The minute world, uh, words can't be trusted, uh, communities fall apart. Churches fall apart. The power of words have the power to create something out of nothing. Think about the highest of highs and the lowest of lows in our world. Things like Nazi Germany were created by captivating words by a manipulative leader, right? Words have the power to create something out of nothing. In fact, here's what the book of, uh, the book of Proverbs would say about that. The book of Proverbs would say it this way. It would say in chapter 18, in the, really the first half of verse 21, it would say that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power uh, of the tongue. You know that that's true. In fact, well, James would even say that too in, in the text. He would say blessings and cursings come from the same mouth, right? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You know that that's true. If you've ever, ladies, heard someone say, you are absolutely gorgeous, right? You know that life can be given in the power of a tongue. Husbands, let let me just, I'm going to give you a win today, all right? Go ahead and turn to your wife and say, it's weird when preachers say, turn to the person next to you and say, but it's okay when it's your wife, all right? So turn to your wife and just tell her she's gorgeous. Just go ahead and do that now, right? So good job, guys. Good job. Hey, uh, so not teenagers, all right? We don't need any dates happening here on the front. All right. So, so you know that life can be given by words. Men, you know that when, some, when you heard your dad or a coach or even your boss today say something like, man, 
great job. Dude, you are awesome. I'm proud of you. Or I really respect you. What does that do to us, guys? It makes us sort of bow our chest out, right? I mean, man, life can be given by the power of words. We know that that's true. On the flip side of that, death can be given by the power of words. Uh, We also know that that's true because we've all been in situations or in rooms where someone has walked into the room and just brought the stench of death into that room. Not literally, like with his words, right? Uh, Brought the stench of death into that room by saying something that just just suck the life right out of it. We've all been there, right? Maybe that happened in, in your home this morning. I mean, really, we've, we've, all, we've all been there. And some of you, you know, you're, you're, even, you're even flooded with emotion in this moment because you're thinking about a time when you heard somebody say something to you like, you're stupid, or I hate you, or get out of here, or you're dumb, or you're ugly, or you're fat, or, or, or whatever it is, right? We know that life, uh, that words can bring life, and that words can bring death. Um, there's an old nursery rhyme that we all memorized when we were kids, right? Um, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will what? Yeah, liar. <laughs> whoever, whoever wrote that obviously did not read the book of James or Proverbs because... Because the reality is that words can hurt us in a way that sticks and stones never can. That's James's point. He's saying words have the power to hurt you in a way that other things can't because words are disproportionately powerful. That's his point. That's why he uses these illustrations. Here's what one commentator said about that little nursery rhyme. And as it relates to this text, here's what he said. He said, What is done to you is of little account compared to what is done in you. Words can destroy confidence, morale, relationships, marriages, and families in a way that sticks and stones never can. Right? This is James's point. His point is that, that words are powerful and that those sticks and stones may break your bones. Words will absolutely destroy you. And all it takes is a memory from all of us of someone's eyes to whom you said words that destroy to, to kind of sear this into our souls. Um, that example for me is my little boy Brady who's eight. Um, he's really like my oldest son Connor is kind of the athlete in our family. Um, but Brady is really more of a thinker. Not that Connor's not a thinker. <laughs> That's not what I mean. But but Brady is really, I mean, like, that's just not his thing. But this year he decided to play basketball. He's never even watched basketball until, the, and so we're like, this is going to be really, really crazy. And so, but the good news is, by the way, as an aside, I didn't tell the Mount Juliet crowd this, Brady is hearing impaired, and so he wears hearing aids. The good thing is that his hearing aids attach to my phone via Bluetooth. So while he was in the game, I could be like, okay, Brady, go to your left, to your left, guard that guy. <laughs> right, seriously. So it actually kind of worked out good. And people beside me must have thought I was crazy. They had no idea what's going on. Anyway, so I'm coaching him while he's playing. So Brady comes home from practice, comes home from practice one day, and he said, he said, uh, like, we've all seen our kids, and uh, if you have kids, and they're, they have that thing going on, like, I'm about to cry, but I'm trying not to, you know? And so he comes home from practice, he walks in the door, and my friend Jason dropped him off, and he walks in, and he said, uh, he had that thing going on, and he said, Dad... And then he kind of starts to tear, but he's still trying to hold it back. I said, what's wrong, buddy? What's wrong? And he said, Dad, Judson said that I was not good at basketball. 
and then he's, he doesn't cry whole, uh, all, and then he, he doesn't cry full on, but he's about to. And so like any good dad, here's what I did. I knelt down there, I got beside my little boy, and I said, Brady, you're not as good at basketball as Judson is. <laughs> not the right thing to say, guys. <laughs> you ever had those moments when something's come out, and you're like, you bring that back. Uh, you can't put toothpaste back in the tube. You can't do it, all right? That's what happened. I shouldn't have said it, but I did say it. And you should have seen this little dude's eyes. It's almost like he was waiting for the punchline for about two seconds because he was like, he looked at me like, are you serious? And then he realized I was, and it completely destroyed him. He cried, man, listen, it took me a week to to get him over that one, right? Uh, here's the point. I saw in that moment what you have seen before. Our words have the power to bring life, but also the power to bring death. And in that moment with my son, my words brought death. Now, um, what's, what's interesting that he does here is he, he goes on in the next verse. Really, let's, let's go to verse 5, really the second part of verse 5. Here's what he says. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And then he goes on, he says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Here's his point. He uses this illustration uh, of a fire to describe our words. Here's why. Um, On October 8th, 1871, that was the day of the worst fire in the history of the United States. Now, some of you think it's the Great Chicago Fire. That also happened on October 8th, 1871. It burned Chicago, a lar- large portion of Chicago, but it wasn't that one. It was a fire called the Peshtigo Fire. The Peshtigo Fire happened in eastern Wisconsin, and what happened was some farmers or um, guys who were laying railroad, we don't know for sure, but they, they had uh, executed what they called a controlled burn. Some of you know what that is. It's where you, you start a fire that's small and manageable, and you control it in a way that it burns through and burns out unwanted plants and vegetation so that you can farm or build railroads or, or property or buildings or whatever on that property. And uh, so that's what had happened. There was a controlled fire that had started, but a strong wind from a cold front blew through eastern Wisconsin and a spark from this controlled burn hit uh, uh, some, some brush that was really dry and whoo, uh, like wildfire, a wildfire started and burned over a million acres um, in eastern Wisconsin. The death toll from the Peshtigo fire was, they don't know for sure, but estimated somewhere around 2,500 people died in the Peshtigo fire. Here's what the legend says about the Peshtigo fire. Legend says that the fire was actually so intense and so hot that people, to avoid the heat and the flames, were actually jumping in rivers and ponds and, and water to avoid the flames. But what happened was it was so hot that it actually boiled those people alive, right? The Peshtigo fire, uh, the reality of this is, was started by a small spark that was intended to do something good, that unintentionally went way beyond where it was intended to go and actually began to boil people alive, left literally the stench of death in its wake, literally, 
right? And James's point here is that's exactly the way our words are. Long after our words are said, just like long after the spark is gone, long after our words are said, they still have the power to bring death or life. Our words, number two is, our words live on. Our words have power, number one. Number two, our words live on long after they sparked initially. I'm going to give you an example of that. When I was in high school, um, I, I played football. I practiced football. Uh, some of y'all get that in a second. And, uh, and so I remember standing on the sidelines uh, on a Friday night, which is where I was most of the time. And um, our coach, our offensive coordinator, his name was Coach Keeling, a big hulk of a man, like Scott Matthews. I mean, just muscled up, you know, big guy. And uh, <laughs> Coach Keeling... Was, we had the ball, and so he's, he's calling for what I thought was a personnel grouping, group of players, that I was in. And so I'm standing over here minding my own business a long way away from Coach Keeling, and, and I think I hear him call. And I'm like, oh, what, 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 me? You know, and so I run up there, you know, and I'm like, Coach, did you say, and then I named the personnel grouping that he said. And I was expecting him to, you know, like good football coaches do, slap me on the butt and say, get in there, Dalberry, make something happen. You know, that deal. That's really what I was expecting. But here's what happened. Coach Keeling, I'll never forget it. Coach Keeling was kind of facing this way, and I ran up there kind of behind him like this, and he turned around like this and then began to walk off. And as he was turning his head around, he said, get out of the way, Dalberry," like that. Listen, that was 24 years ago. 24 years ago. And still, when I'm thinking about that this week and how it would illustrate this text, emotions flood my soul, right? Words have the power to bring death long after they were ever said. You know that that's true. Um, My job at Lifeway is I lead the men's ministry area there. And so I spend a lot of time uh, looking at uh, research, um, statistics, articles about the impact of men on their families and churches and communities in the world. And, and what all um, social scientists will tell you is that there's a reality, a phenomenon called the father wound. Uh, some of you know what I'm talking about, the father wound. And um, biblical counselors deal with this and father wound. But here's the idea. It's that words from a father, okay, either, um, either, either absentee, Words, like words that aren't said when they should have been, or over-aggressive, harsh words. That words from a father, either one of those ways, wounds a person deeply. And what social scientists will tell you is that wounds like those, words or lack of, from a father, actually wound a person so deeply that some of today's greatest um, ills are caused by words or lack of when they were needed to be said from a father. In fact, a, a producer, news producer in Texas named Justin Hunt said this. He said, um, wound from, he said that a wound from a father, harsh or, a father's harsh or absent words are so deep and so all-pervasive in, many, uh, in so many parts of the world that its healing could well be the most radical social reform conceivable. See, he's saying that Father's words, even if they were said decades ago, are so powerful in a person's life that if healing could be brought to those wounds that are so deep, it could heal some of the world's most, most, most terrible things. In fact, let me take that a step further. Um, 71% of all prison inmates, 71%, 
statistics tell us, come from homes where there is a deep father wound, either from harsh words or lack of words when words were needed. 81% of convicted rapists, 81%, almost all, come from homes where there is a father wound that is so deep and it was caused by daddy who either said something too harsh or multiple somethings or didn't say something when something was needed to be said. See, words are powerful to bring life and death, but not just in the moment. Long, long, long after they're ever said. Um, I have a good friend named Kenny. Kenny Sandifer is a uh, marriage and family therapist who has an office in downtown Nashville. Does a lot of relationship counseling, marriage, but also others uh, kind of counseling as well. Here's what he says. He calls it, he calls it uh, raw spots, but he says most, if not all, marriage issues are, are because of things that were said about a person or to a person years ago, maybe not even by that, uh, that other spouse that you have the conflict with. Uh, maybe it was, but maybe not. But, but are caused by raw spots that come from years ago, even in childhood. Okay? And so what Kenny would say is actually some of the earliest relationships a person has with mom or dad or lack of mom or dad. And some of the things that were said uh, by mom and dad to those kids later on actually cause raw spots that kind of um, become ruts in a person's life that later on will cause relational difficulties in marriages decades after they were said. Do you see the point? This is exactly what James is saying. He's saying that like a spark from a fire, our words will continue on and bring death and boil people alive long after they are ever said. And this is why it's so important to learn to tame, tame the tongue. You, you know that that's true because some of you are struggling today with self-worth issues, maybe eating disorders or something like that because someone years ago said that you were fat. Or you struggle with, you, you, don't, you think you're ugly because in high school or in middle school, somebody said you were ugly. Or, or maybe you relentlessly attempt to climb the corporate ladder because years ago, daddy said that you were lazy and you'll never amount to anything. And so now you're out to prove him right. And so what happens then is you're relentlessly trying to climb the corporate ladder in a way that it actually causes an imbalance of work and the rest of your life, which causes marital conflict. And what you're doing is you're actually boiling people that mean the most to you alive because of words that were said that brought death in your life years ago. Do you see this idea? Words are powerful. Words are powerful to, to, to bring life and to bring, to bring death. But words are powerful long after they're said. And then he goes on, and, and really James gives us a third thing, and it's this, that, that our words really reveal the, the degree of our spiritual maturity. Okay? You see James address this a couple different times in this text. Really verse 2 and then verses 11 and 12. Let me read verse 2, because in verse 2, there's this interesting phrase that really proves what I just said that James is doing here, or saying about our words. Look, for we all stumble in many ways, verse 2 says, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now, notice that James uses the phrase perfect man, and he's saying, he's saying, if you are able to tame your tongue and you don't stumble in what you say, that's his point, you're able to really get control of this thing, you're a perfect man. Now, the word perfect there in the Greek language is the word teleos. And the word teleos is used um, to describe two different things. 
in the Greek language, the, the language of the New Testament. And so to understand really which one is used, you have to look at the context. And what most commentators, Bible scholars, will say that in context, the word teleos is describing here is not like perfect without flaw, not with, like, like um, actually perfect, like Jesus, you know, without any imperfection. But most Bible scholars say that what, what they're talking about here is this idea of completeness or maturity. And so what James is saying is that God, in his goodness, has actually, and think, think about it kind of this way, actually given us our words sort of as a gauge on the dashboard of our lives so that we never have to question what level our spiritual maturity is. In other words, when we look at our, our words, we're able to then track back and go, oh, okay, well, our words are that way because of the level of our spiritual maturity. They're kind of a gauge on the, the dashboard of our lives. They're not just words that are bad. And I just messed up. No, they actually reveal something deeper about our spiritual maturity. In fact, he goes on with that same idea in verse verse 11 and 12. Um, So what he does in those verses is he begins to describe things like water. And he talks about, uh, well, I'll just read it. He says, "Does does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? And obviously the implication is no, it doesn't. Uh, Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond produce or yield fresh water. So what James is doing here is, again, using some illustrations to describe this idea that the outcome is affected by the source. He said figs are produced because the source is a fig tree. Salt water is produced because the, the, the saltiness. Fresh water is produced because there's a fresh water spring. The source is fresh water. And so what he's doing, James is saying is that our words are actually produced by the source. There's something much deeper. If our words are bringing death or life, there's something much deeper than are causing our words to to come out the way they're coming out. What James is doing here is he's actually um, reflecting or echoing what his big brother Jesus has said in Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus said this. He said, Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The other translations say the excess or the overflow. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is saying there, and James is echoing it here, that every person has something in our hearts that is our deep and, and most sort of pervasive desire. Like this is the thing that drives us. And, and that thing bubbles up and overflows out of our lives onto our tongue, and whatever that thing is, is passed through the conduit of our mouth out onto other people around us. And James's point, and Jesus' point is, that when that heart is focused or, or, or um, saturated with anything other than a deep delight and desire for Jesus, and by the gospel, if, it's, if your heart is filled up with anything else, It will spew out onto other people death. A a way to say it is the way I say it um, with my kids all the time. Hurt people, hurt people. Okay. Uh, If our heart is filled up with anything other than an all-consuming love for Jesus, it will at some point produce words that hurt other people. On the other hand, if our our lives are filled up to the the brim and overflowing with Jesus, it's in those moments that we pour out um, uh, goodness and life-giving words onto other people. Um, And so let me, examples of how this plays out. 
if, if what drives you and fills up sort of your soul is this desire for approval, then what will happen is you, you're, you want approval so bad that the words that come out of your mouth will be uh, filled with things like spin uh, and exaggeration and not having a backbone to say things that needed to be said in a moment because you're so worried about what, what, uh, what people will think. And you want approval so bad that actually, you, instead of using words that give life, you just won't say anything at all, which actually brings death, Right? And so, and so this is the idea, you, you'll, you'll, be a, you'll be a one-upper, right? Um, you're always waiting for the other person to talk so that you can spew out words that somehow position you as being awesome, right? So that that person will approve of you more, okay? This is his point. If that's what fills up your heart, that's what comes out. Um, maybe, maybe things like um, you want to be impressive. If, if wanting to be impressive to other people is what fills you up, then what happens is that when the, the instant you feel threatened by someone else that is more impressive than you are or you think they are, maybe you're in sales and somebody comes in and they, like, they had more sales than you this month, right? And you hear about it. The, the instant you're threatened by you know, somebody else being more impressive, what you'll do is you'll actually get jealous of them and begin to spew out words either aggressively, actively, or passive aggressively that cut them. Rather than celebrating with them, you'll, you'll actually chisel away at them so that you can reestablish yourself as the most impressive. What you're doing is you're allowing those things that are in your heart, a desire to be impressive, to flow out with your words onto other people in a way that brings death. Do you see this? Maybe it's you're filled up with money, and so uh, it flows out in your language. Maybe it's, maybe it's sex for you that fills up, and it flows out in your language. Maybe the jokes you tell or the things that you say to your wife, and you, you, you tell her that, you know, uh, if she would just do this, then right? And, and so it, you know that if you've ever, that's ever happened to you, those things bring death. That's his point. His point is, man, when our heart's filled up with anything other than Jesus, death-giving words flow out. And he's already told us that those things have a long-lasting effect. James's real point throughout this whole text, and the reason he keeps telling us all these things, his point really is, we're all guilty. All of us. In fact, if you look at verse 7 or remember what it said, it said, he gives us these examples of birds and all these animals. He's like, people can tame those, but we can't tame the tongue. And then he goes on to say, may it not be so. This should not be so. His point is, this is not right. This is not the way God intended it to be. But also, we can't do anything about it. We can't help it, is what he's saying. There's nothing we can do to stop our tongue being jacked up and bringing death on other people. Right? That's the bad news. But what James does is he points out these realities that, that we're all, some of us are marked by angry words and death-giving you know, words instead of life-giving words, but we can do nothing about it. His, his, his point really is that we're all broken and that we're all guilty, and that is bad news. But in verse 6, there's this little phrase that we might overlook that um, really is a piggyback on an illustration he's already used that actually gives us the good news. In, in verse 6, at the very end of verse 6, he's talking about this fire illustration that we already talked about. But at the end of that verse, he says, basically, that the tongue or our words are set on fire by hell. They're set on fire by hell. You see it there on the screen. What, is, what does that mean? Why, and why, why is that good news? <laughs> right? Here's his point. 
His point is he's recognizing the reality that our tongue can be driven by two different things. And here he's recognizing the, the, uh, the, the reality that our tongue in ourselves and in our flesh is driven by the power of hell. Let me give you a biblical example of that. If you go back to Genesis chapter um, 11, you'll find a story there that, if you, back to Sunday school, was the, you know is the Tower of Babel. What happened there in Genesis chapter 11 is that people were using their language, they were using their words to sort of build a name for themselves and uh, to sort of kind of build their own kingdom. And so what happened is God loved them too much to let them continue in that and in them using their words that would eventually bring death. And so actually he confused their languages. Fast forward to Acts chapter 2, and what happened in Acts chapter 2 is really interesting. If you read it and study the book of Acts, you know that when the Holy Spirit comes, now there's before Babel, one language, after Babel, multiple languages. Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, and uh, there are people there from all over the world, so all multiple languages are there. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and it says that they landed on people in a way that looked like tongues of fire. You remember that? And so what happened was then, those people began to be filled up with the Holy Spirit, and, and they began to speak the gospel about what Jesus had done in a way that would give life to all of those nations that were around, and in fact, be a, be a revert. What happened there, if you study it theologically, is actually a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. It's a reversal of Babel. In other words, what God is doing in, in Acts chapter 2 is, God is bringing healing for the way our words are, are used, are powered by hell and are used to, to destroy people and, and bring death instead of life. And so James's point here is that, that just like what happened in Acts, when people were focusing on what Jesus had done on the cross and worshiping God because of Jesus' activity on the cross, and that's when the Holy Spirit comes and invades them and it heals their hearts which results in then their, their words not being driven by the power of hell anymore, but now their words being driven by the power of the gospel and gospel-centeredness and saturation in their hearts. This is James's point. This is his point. So, so what, if, they're, if focusing on Jesus on the cross did that, what did Jesus do on the cross? On the cross, what Jesus did is Jesus was ridiculed, and harsh words, death-giving words were said about Jesus. But Jesus, though venomous, death-giving words were spoken about him, had the last word. Do you remember what Jesus said on the cross? When death-giving words were being spewed at him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. See, Jesus had the last word. Do you remember that when Jesus cried out on the cross to God, what happened from heaven? Silence. Even today, one of the worst forms of punishment uh, is solitary confinement. Silence. So what happened on the cross was that when Jesus cried out, he was given from God the Father the silence the punishment that we deserve so that we could get the word that he deserved. What's that word? The word God said about him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Right? Or the most amazing thing that can be said about us is this is my son. This is my daughter. And the Bible's clear that when we give our hearts to Jesus that we're adopted as God's very own children. 
And, and when we take um, ourselves to the cross, what happens is uh, we're, given this, we're given a brand new heart so that our words then can bubble out and be transformed. Not because we sort of will ourselves to just do a better job, but because the gospel has made our hearts new and because our hearts have been transformed, resulting in our words being transformed. If your words are bringing death, and man, let's be honest, we would all say, all of us, all of us would say, guilty. It's because there are areas of your heart that are still not yet conformed to the image of a son of God or a daughter of the king. Right? There's still areas. And so you take those things to the cross. You, take, you don't just will yourself to do better. You take those things to the cross. And you say, God, would you give me a greater delight? Would you replace whatever it is I'm delighting in that's causing that with a delight for you? Your words are healed by the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus' last words were, it is finished. Man. What a powerful, amazing story of what the gospel does to our words when the gospel becomes a reality in our lives.